few months ago, I finally paid off my student loans, over $80,000 in debt that had plagued me since graduating from my master's program. And that served as a constant reminder of the ways in which I felt so incredibly behind in life. To pay this all off on my own as a child of immigrants with no generational wealth, as a single woman with no wealthy circles of influence, this was a really big deal and something to really celebrate. And I wanted to share it and scream it from the rooftops because I did the damn thing. But because I'm me, I also saw it as a teachable moment to provide some of my informed perspective on the exploitative nature of governments charging interest on loans that so many of us from equity-deserving groups are required to take on to obtain higher education to better be able to position ourselves as marketable specifically those of us without the depths of privilege that come from being male, white, coming from generational wealth or circles of influence, all of that fun stuff. So I shared on my LinkedIn and the supportive, kind, thoughtful responses came pouring in from friends, work colleagues, former work colleagues, and strangers. And then there comes my old work colleague, Paul from America. Paul, who decided to mansplain all over my good news story to explain to me how the concept of interest works, how all of us must pay our fair share to borrow money, and then proceeded to tell me not everything should be about equity. Well, Paul, for those of us from equity denied and deserving groups, everything is about equity. Everything is about challenging the systems that put us at a disadvantage for nothing other than our gender, sexuality, race, or ability. He proceeded to tell anyone that would listen in the comment section how we're all one human race, and all this talk about diversity and inclusion just goes too far. Well, Paul, this episode is dedicated to you and to all the people who proclaim to not see color, to claim reverse racism, who use the word woke as a weapon, and who believe in the idea of a meritocracy. I want to highlight all of the problematic and uninformed ways that people talk about race that ultimately gaslights, attempts to shut down, and denies the existence of the lived experiences of those of us living as Black, Indigenous, and people of color. And one of the reasons I got so passionate and into the work of equity and inclusion is because so many of the conversations that I've been a part of and have heard in a corporate setting on diversity, even past 2020, often stop at gender or play into the safe concept of talking about diversity of thought. And the missing piece of the puzzle is often the intersectional layers of experience that racialized, queer, and disabled folks navigate through. And to be frank, because white people are part of the queer and disabled communities, they hold privilege in ways that Black, Indigenous, and people of color will never have meaningful access to. And I often feel like a broken record in that I speak to those experiences the not-so-micro-microaggressions that many Black, Indigenous, and people of color navigate through just by simply existing. 
And I know I'm a broken record because the narrative and the lived experiences are so often overlooked. They are often unheard and not believed. And it's often that we are made to feel like it's all in our heads. So I'm dedicating this episode to all of the problematic ways in which the world others us, takes away our sense of agency in how we define our identities, and the things that people say that are just plain racist, discriminatory, and downright wrong. I'm doing this so I can drive the point home one more time in a way that I hope calls you into the dialogue and resonates so you understand why and how they are harmful. See, I've been living my entire life defined as a first-generation Canadian, a child of immigrants, a Muslim, and a woman of color. Some of these labels I've been given by the world to categorize me, and other labels I've inherited through the experiences and identity of my parents. I'm very well-versed in the lived experience of being othered, of being gaslit for expressing my feelings on how unseen it can make me feel when people butcher my name or ask me where I'm really from, or the moments from my childhood where being more overt with the racism was just a little more acceptable, being called packy by kids on the playground. I also know the feeling all too well of rarely, if ever seeing representation in the workplace of leaders that looked anything like me or of watching people of color leaders cop out and give in to white supremacy in the workplace so that they could advance, or of watching ways in which so many of us carry on the song and dance of hiding every part of our identities that make us stand out just a little less for fear of being seen as too much, not a culture fit, or not promotable. And I've been immersed in the world of equity and inclusion, either formally or informally, leading an ERG and doing this work in two organizations for the last four years. So I've seen and heard a lot. I've delivered inclusion training to hundreds of leaders, and I've heard a lot in the process of teaching. I've also mentored and been mentored by Black, Indigenous, and other women of color, and I've heard countless stories of experiences that genuinely call for change, that implore those in positions of influence, even those of us with marginalized identities that carry privilege in ways that Black and Indigenous folks don't have access to, calling for us to do better, to challenge our internal biases and reprogram our brains beyond what's always been known to us, existing in a world that rewards whiteness above all else. And what may seem innocent on the surface can often carry with it layers of harm to the receiver. And I grew up in the 80s and 90s, and I recognize that life as we've known it for many white folks has been a world where these things just weren't questioned, where the pain and frustration of racialized and indigenous folks were often overlooked. They were challenged because there was limited attention to the visceral pain that our communities felt. Nothing like that which captured the world's attention when George Floyd was brutally murdered in front of our eyes. The new sense of quote-unquote wokeness is simply a call to tune in, to be aware, to hold ourselves accountable to the ways in which many of us have been taught to see the world. 
the ways that cause harm and that build up to possibilities where we see growing numbers of missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, and Two-Spirit people, and ways in which we see violent engagements that leave Black folks at harm through the policing of everything they do, from their hair to their very existence in the world. That wokeness we ask primarily white people to lean into, that's rooted in helping us to co-create a world in which equity is the norm to address the ways in which the world has never made it fair or easy for Black, Indigenous, and people of color to exist in peace and prosperity. So when someone tells me things like they don't see color, what I hear is someone attempting to demonstrate that they're a good person by leaning on neutrality. But I call BS because I know that race is a social social construct, a human invented classification system of sorts that has most often been used as a tool for oppression and violence, but it exists in our psyches in ways that one can't claim to unsee. In addition to the pure fallacy of the statement in and of itself, it erases the existence of the uniqueness of something like my brown skin, the beauty of difference that when it's not being weaponized, should actually really be celebrated, appreciated, and recognized. From the British Columbia Human Rights Commissioner, they ask, are you blind to color or reality? As Canadian as we are and our desire to uphold an idea of niceness and politeness, systemic racism is alive and well in our world and in our workplaces. It doesn't always show up as an in-your-face moment. Rather, it shows up in insidious ways that often allows us to go on pretending we're this multicultural mosaic that prides itself on not being as bad as America but to overlook moments that are less bold and less in your face means letting the work of systemic racism chip slowly away at those it impacts the most. And claiming to not see color simply aids in upholding a system that thrives on people attempting to take neutrality or a one human race approach. It's simply a cop-out from leaning in closer to the reality that Black, Indigenous, and people of color don't have the privilege to ignore. And I will attempt to say this with as much grace and kindness as I can muster, but no, there is no such thing as reverse racism. And the existence of racism against white people is a non-factor. According to The Atlantic, the usage of reverse racism and reverse discrimination arose in direct response to affirmative and race-based policies in the 1970s in America, and were centered primarily in the belief that social and economic gains primarily by Black people caused social and economic disadvantages for white people. And claims of reverse racism or white people being at the receiving end of racist rhetoric or practices, those are the definition of a misnomer. See, racism is about power. And white skin throughout North America, and frankly the world because of colonialism, comes with it a depth and level of power that is frankly untouchable by Black, Indigenous, and people of color. 
For white people, the effects and impacts of systemic racism cannot be real. Because how would it be possible to feel or experience something that literally has never impacted you? According to Anthony Morgan, a Toronto-based civil and human rights lawyer, it's slavery, colonialism, theft, all kinds of violations on systemic proportions versus feelings being hurt. He goes on to explain that anybody who would want to use or identify something as reverse racist, that I would strongly encourage them to stop for a moment and really think seriously about the last time they really have taken the time to study or get a deep understanding of what racism is and how it impacts different communities. And I'll preface all of this by emphasizing that racism can and absolutely does exist in many capacities within communities of color, namely in people of color using their privilege and social power and their proximity to whiteness to behave in racist ways, primarily against Black and Indigenous people. I've seen it firsthand within my own community, and there's a concept of a sort of a hierarchy of racism that puts people like me, people of color and the model minority, in a position of far greater privilege than folks that are Black and Indigenous. And it's a really relevant conversation in 2023 with all that is happening south of the border border in America, with Florida governor and now presidential candidate Ron DeSantos mandating Asian American history while banning courses on systemic racism under the Stop Woke Act that quote-unquote distorts significant historical events or includes a curriculum that teaches identity politics. It also bans theories that systemic racism, sexism, oppression, and privilege are inherent in the institutions of the United States and were created to maintain social, political, and economic inequities. And when the rights of Asian Americans and other communities of color are predicated on the backs of Black American activists, and their history is being untold or banned from being told, the full truth of the reality of systemic racism is ignored and further divides communities that need to band together to fight against the very system that ultimately only values whiteness or adherence and conformity to whiteness. As the saying goes, our liberation is bound together. And what we're ultimately talking about comes back to power and privilege. According to Damien Alonzo, yes, people of color can be racist towards other people of color, but people of color can't be racist towards white people. You cannot be racist towards white people because to be racist, you need to have two things, privilege and power. And when I talk about things like valuing international experience from white dominant countries over predominantly racialized countries, things like punishing people from equity deserving groups for using systems in place to bring up inequities by calling them difficult or suddenly not a culture fit, things like saying all lives matter or some ridiculous form of it when a specific equity deserving group is spotlighted or assuming a Black, Indigenous, or person of color was hired into their role, not because they are the most qualified, but because they were hired to fill a quota. 
or being a bystander to racist comments or rhetoric. These are all things that are happening in our workplaces in Canada. But what those who wish to not see the problem would say to me is likely stop trying to be so woke or creating problems where there are not. Woke is the most weaponized term to shut down all of us from speaking our truth. And the term woke originated with an African-American vernacular and in a more public capacity through a 1962 New York Times essay, If You're Woke, You Dig It, by the then Harlem-based writer William Melvin Kelly, who was highlighting the phenomenon of Black American slang being appropriated by white people who often missed or altogether distorted the word's original meanings until the idioms were taken over, inevitably transformed, and ultimately abandoned by their original Black creators. And Michael Harriet, columnist at The Griot and author of the upcoming book, Black AF History, The Unwhitewashed Story of America, notes that when you look at the long arc of history and America's reaction to the request for Black liberation, every time Black people try to use a phrase or coin a phrase that symbolizes our desire for liberation, it will eventually become a cuss word to white people. He goes on to say that the manipulation of the word woke has been key to affecting policies that, when looked at plainly, reveal a foundational hostility to values most Americans share. This includes recognizing and honoring icons who toiled to bring the nation closer to living up to its ideals of justice and fairness, where everyone can thrive and live without fear of being targeted for who they are. He says it's hard to get people to demonize human beings and lives and history, but it's easy to get them to demonize a word. And if you can use that word as a placeholder for those people, for caring about those people, then it's easy to demonize instead of saying, we're just going to stop caring about people. An OK player, senior news and culture reporter, Elijah Watson agrees. He says that when I think of political figures like DeSantis and the rampant fight against critical race theory, you are really trying to erase history and trying to erase knowledge that we need to grow better as people. The fact that you are trying to hide these experiences all for the comfort of your white fragility is troubling, harmful, and most importantly, dangerous. And that's literally everything that woke goes against. And that's exactly what is happening. And I recognize that America is not Canada, but so much of the rhetoric of hate, the anti-blackness that permeates America, seeps into the psyche of folks across the border in ways that we may not even realize or be aware of. For those that aren't aware, today happens to be the day that the province that I reside in is undergoing a provincial election that could see our most marginalized communities end up at significant risk. Under the United Conservative Party that currently governs the political arena here, in October 2022, a resolution drafted by the party's Edmonton West Henday Riding Association aimed to ban the instruction of critical race theory, intersectionality, anti-racism, and diversity and inclusion. 
It called for a halt to what it called differential treatment due to ethnic heritage and any student being taught that by reason of their ethnic heritage, they are privileged. They are inherently racist or they bear historical guilt due to said ethnic heritage or that of all society is a racist system. These types of conversations, attempts to erase history, to uphold an anti-white woke society are not far-fetched in our country. So the next time someone says I'm being too woke, I will remind them that woke is the only way to be. And my final point is one predicated on an idea that Canada has its own version of the American dream, a meritocracy where hard work and hustle are enough to find success and live life on your terms. I'm breaking it to you if you haven't caught on, but a meritocracy is a myth. According to The Guardian, meritocracy was a concept first coined by English sociologist Michael Young and represents a vision in which power and privilege would be allocated by individual merit, not by social origins. But if you're a woman, disabled, neurodiverse, Black, Indigenous, or a person of color, and or any combination of the above, you know there are deep flaws in a system that rewards white skin and privilege above, above all else. And I've touched on this before in the last episode, but it really bears repeating. Hard work and hustle aren't enough to navigate most workplaces where, according to McKinsey, based on current HR practices, women and women of color can never actually catch up. For every 100 men who are promoted from entry-level roles to manager positions, only 87 women are promoted and only 82 women of color are promoted. And the more intersectional you get, the more barriers are in place that can't be ignored. Black women leaders are more ambitious but face greater barriers to advancement. They are more likely than women leaders of other races and ethnicities to receive signals that it will be harder for them to advance. Compared to other women at their level, Black women leaders are more likely to have colleagues question their competence and be subjected to demeaning behavior. And one in three Black women leaders says that they've been denied or passed over for opportunities because of personal characteristics, including their race and gender. Further, things like the gender pay gap exist, and they're worse for those of us who face multiple barriers, including racialized women, Indigenous women, and women with disabilities. And though it differs by age group, the gap starts from a young age and carries into senior years. Now, tell me that a meritocracy exists because it has actually never existed. And it's time we stop perpetuating the lie. So to Paul and all the other folks who don't appreciate a truth that's a little too inconvenient for them, I hope this provides some clarity on why we use the terms equity deserving and why everything really is about equity and inclusion these days. These problematic ways in which we've let comments about race slide, those can't be ignored or overlooked for you to feel better or less guilty. They need to be examined from a critical lens to actually move the needle on the progress we so desperately need and deserve. And if you have enjoyed the conversation, if you've learned absolutely anything from the dialogue today, 
I would love for you to hit the subscribe button and to connect with me on things that you want to discuss, you want to learn more about. This podcast is of service to my listeners and to the community. I'm so passionate about advancing equity because you literally cannot get to equality until we start looking at things from the solution of equity. And I appreciate you being along for the journey with me, for sticking around, for tuning in. And if you found some value in the conversation today, I would love for you to subscribe, to leave a review, and to share this podcast episode and the podcast with anyone in your circles of influence. And until next time, I thank you so much for tuning in, and I hope that you learned a few things about some of the problematic things that we let people say, that we may have said, that we let people get away with about race and why they're so problematic. Talk soon.